Hey, Lord, just thanks so much for our church, and thanks so much for just the incredible things that you're doing in this place right now. We, we just can't even imagine uh, that you're using us to just have such an incredible impact in our community and in the lives of the people who attend here. And God, would you, would you just even do more? We would pray the prayer that Jabra has prayed. Would you enlarge our territory? Would you give us the chance to serve you in even uh, greater ways? And uh, we ask this in your precious name. Uh, amen. Hey, thank you, guys. <clears throat> no, and, thank, and you know, that was very kind of Frankie to say. He, he did that because he knows that I have been a little weary and a little bit tired just recently. Easter was a lot of speaking all in uh, one weekend. And, uh, and I've just been, I have been staying really, really, really busy. So he, he kind of saw me today and said, hey, are you all right? And I said, yeah, but I'm... I'm a little bit tired, so that's what prompted him to say that. But thank you, guys. Thank you for praying for me. I appreciate that a ton. Hey, just a couple things to kind of catch us up. Uh, if, if you were here a couple uh, weekends ago, you heard me uh, do what I call the 1% challenge, where I, I just said to everybody in the room who tithed and said, hey, look, we're not talking to you but, uh, because you've been faithful, but our offerings have been pretty seriously flat, and uh, just challenged everybody in the room who was not at a full 10% tithe yet to take this moment uh, when really the need of the church was uh, serious and just say, would you move 1%? Because my, my hope is, my prayer is that all of us as Christ followers would say, my, my desire is to eventually be perfectly obedient to this part of God's command. And so we asked our church to do that. And I just want to tell you that I'm so proud of our church because we, we really did. We had a really great response to that. Our offerings have been up much, much closer uh, to where they need to be. And uh, just so I'm, I'm thankful for that. I just want to tell you as your pastor, I'm proud of our people and proud of you for responding in that moment. I am going to ask you to pray about this still. And if you still haven't made that decision to still consider it on the deal, uh, it's one of those deals where we got really, really close to where we need to get, but we didn't get quite where we need to get right now. If you've ever seen, uh, you know, like when a car stalls on the side of the road and a couple of people stop to push and you see that car is barely moving. And when that one more person gets out, pushes the car, all of a sudden it's easier for everybody and it gets momentum. And that's really the moment we're in right now. And so I'm just going to say to you, if, if you have already and you already are a tither or you've already stepped up on the 1%, then thank you. And would you pray for the rest of us? If you haven't so far yet, I'm just going to encourage you to do that. I'm just going to say out loud to you right now, I'm going to come back to the church and talk to them about that on Sunday a little bit. Because if we could just get a little bit further on this, it would bring such huge relief to what's going on right now for us. And then uh, just kind of the second part to say out loud quietly, or sort of quietly in this room, uh, we're at a place where we're pretty close potentially to maybe, and I hesitate to say it because I just feel like the bridesmaid who's been left at the altar a couple times, but we're fairly close to potentially having the loan on our buildings right now. And so I'm just going to ask you to pray for that. Pray that that just continues to move forward and that that can be something that maybe in a few weeks we could announce and say, hey guys, it's a done deal. It's actually uh, happened. Um, and guys, if, if, if how in the world anyone could sit in this room and not realize the idea that we need to do something about our facilities on a given Sunday? Um, how many were here for Easter? Okay. Easter, Easter Sunday, guys, over 12,000 people in our room on Easter Sunday. Yeah, which is just crazy stuff. Something I think is in some ways, uh, 
we've been growing as a church. So uh, last year we grew 450 people, something like that, on a Sunday. This year already, just in the first quarter, we're about 250 people up over last year. Um, so we're just having, you know, a, an incredible impact right now. And I know some people say, well, wait, Lynn, you know, you know, you talk about numbers and attendance and all that all the time. And you're right, we do. We, we unapologetically talk about attendance. And here's why. Because every single number is a life. It's a person. And that's a person who's trying to figure out Jesus, or that's a Christian who's trying to grow in Jesus. Every single number, every time we fill a seat, it's somebody, hopefully, who's moving forward in the kingdom. And this is a big deal. And I don't know about you guys, but, man, I, I look at the world, and I go, man, I think we're in a pretty broken world. And the only way that we're going to change this world is if we can get a ton of people to decide to follow Jesus Christ with all their hearts and their lives. It's not going to be a political answer. It's, not, it's going to be a spiritual answer. It's going to be when people surrender their lives to Christ and follow him without apology, our world will change, our culture will change, our society will change. And guys, you and I are doing our part of it. We're changing as many lives in Chandler, Arizona, and Ahwatukee, and Mesa, and Tempe, and Gilbert as we possibly can for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. So every single person matters. Every number matters. And if I if we could cram 20,000 in this building, we would do it. We just can't. And so it, it's... Last Sunday, we had overflow overflowing. We had chairs in the back uh, in one of our services. We've got to do something. So with all that said, all I'm asking you to do in that regard is, will you pray? Will you be faithful in prayer and say, God, please give us the opportunity that brick and mortar wouldn't be the thing that slows our church down? That just sounds stupid to me, guys, uh, that brick and mortar would potentially slow us down. So I'm just going to ask you as your pastor, please pray that God would remove that obstacle for from us, okay? So that's you and me. That's because you guys are insiders. That's us having a conversation. Okay. All right. All right. Let's grab our Bibles. We're going to dig back in to Romans. Romans chapter 13. Okay. So, uh, I'll tell you, let's start, let's start with prayer and then, uh, I'm going to remind you how badly I was bothering you last time. All right, here we go. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, thank you again for the chance to be together, a chance to study your word. God teach us tonight. Help us to see things we've never seen before. Help us to become obedient to things that we've never surrendered before. Change us for having been in your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So you remember, we started uh, Romans chapter 13. And uh, let, let me just read it to us again real, real quick because it'll refresh and remind. Here's what it says. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Let everyone, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities... For there is no authority except that which God has established, even the bad authorities. And remember, we had a discussion. We said, hey, guys, uh, the authorities you have in your life, the authorities that we all have in our lives, are either the authorities we deserve or the authority that we need, which includes the bad ones. And I just have to tell you, there was many times, have been many times in my career, where I served under really bad leaders who were horribly and grossly unfair to me. And yet it was under those bad leaders that I was most inspired to learn leadership. 
Because in those moments, I said, I never want to be that guy. I never want to be that gal. I don't ever want to treat anybody this way. And it pushed me. It put a burning in my soul to say, there's got to be a better way to bring leadership to the church. So guys, I'm just telling you, even in bad experiences, they can be learning experiences. And we also said, one of the key reasons that it's so critical to listen to and obey leadership is that there's going to be a moment when God is going to lead you somewhere that you're going to be absolutely convinced he's wrong about. You're going to be absolutely convinced he doesn't understand your situation. You're going to be without a doubt that he, if he knew the circumstances, if he ever met your wife, if he ever met your husband, if he ever had to deal with your kids, whatever that is, he wouldn't have said it that way. And you somehow are the exception. And you'll talk yourself into that. Unless you've come to the understanding that says, hey, God knows what he's talking about. And when God says something, he is always right. And when I disobey him, I am always wrong. And I'm just not going to fight his authority. I'm going to trust him in this moment, even though my heart doesn't feel like it. Even though I I could think of three reasons. I'm going to trust my God in this moment. And I'm just telling you that no one who has ever put their trust in God in a moment like that, has ever lived to regret it. But tons of people coming up with excuses, coming up with reasons why God was wrong, have lived with lifelong regret. So I'm just, I'm just, this, is a critical, this is a critical thing for us to understand and to get. Uh, here we go. The authorities that exist uh, have been established by God. Verse 2, consequently, uh, everyone who rebels against authorities rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves from God. Uh, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant, even the crummy ones. Guys, again, let me... You need to hear, as this is being written, the name of the book we're studying right now is the book of Romans. This is being written to Christians. Guess how Romans feel about Christians? They hate them. Matter of fact, in just a few short years, they're going to start burning Christians at the stake and throwing them to lions. And you need to know that whatever you feel about our government or whatever you feel about your boss at work, I guarantee you, you don't feel anything near what these believers reading this passage felt about the Roman government that that Paul was saying to them. You have to show positional honor. You have to understand that even if they're making bad decisions, even if they're horrible people, they hold a position that God has allowed them to have. You have to at least show positional honor. Okay. Uh, Verse four, for the one who holds authority is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for rulers do not hold the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience, just because this is the right thing to do. This is also why you pay taxes for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone uh, what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Okay. Uh, Any quick questions about that so far? All right. Look at that. That was amazing how quickly you got that microphone there. Thank you. All right. 
Last week, we asked a question about Hitler and Mussolini, and we never really answered that. And we also, you also asked... You asked a if, question that I never answered? No, no, no. You and now you're of, bringing it up? You didn't yeah. see me avoiding the end? No, okay. All right. um, it was on Hitler and Mussolini and if... Okay, oh, Hitler was. and Mussolini and all that? Right. And you also asked, what if we had an authority who wanted us to do something vile? Okay. All right, so let's hold on to that one because we're going to go spend a few minutes on that in just a minute. Anything else real quick on questions? So the question that was just asked there is, what do you do? How come if God establishes authority, right? How come such horrific authorities have been allowed to be established as guys like Hitler? And guys, you know, it's interesting because you and I have this reference about Hitler and, and he did. He killed at least six million Jews. You really, and I think I've got this right. Stalin, during the same period of time, killed 11,000 or 11 million Russians coming to power. Almost double what Hitler killed. So, yeah, and horrible, horrible leaders who, who were vile in their leadership. And then the next question was, you know, what do you do when you have a bad leader in your life, someone who's asking you to do something that's inappropriate or completely wrong? So we'll talk about that in a minute. Anything else real quick on leadership? Okay. All right, we'll go there. All right, so here's, here, let's, talk about, let's talk about the whole kind of Hitler direction stuff. If you're asking me, is God thrilled about a Hitler being in, in power? And the answer has to be clearly no, right? I mean, there's no chance that God's going, boy, man, glad that guy is doing what that guy is doing. But God does allow a guy like Hitler to be in power because, because, because we get the leaders we deserve. Post-World War I, and you remember World War I, Germany makes its attempt to take world power. They tried to do in World War I the very same thing they were trying to do in World War II, which was really to take over and dominate all of Europe. Uh, when World War I ends uh, with the armistice, they then, in, in essence, de-weaponize um, Germany. And they uh, take all of their military power away, but they also took a lot of their industrial power away. And the reason that they basically closed down and took away a lot of the factories and things was because the Germans had been using those factories to make war supplies and war equipment. Well, part of the result of that was their economy stank because they didn't have the capacity to do the same level of production. So you have post-World War I years and years of bad economy. Now, you want to get people to make stupid decisions... Mess with, huh? Mess with their wallet. Because I, I, I'm just telling you, there's nothing that you're going to make someone matter about. Just ask me. I'm a pastor. All I have to do is talk about money. And, and people are instantly mad. I'm, I'm, I'm a jerk. And all I want, you know, all right. I'm just telling you. And so here's what happens post-World War I. Germany. They're going for years and years of poor economy because of the sanctions that have happened after World War I, and they're watching the rest of Europe thrive. And in the midst of that, rather than having regret, and rather than being honest in self-evaluation and saying, you know what the truth is, we're living with the sanctions that are part of our bad behavior. It's, it's what we did that was so inappropriate. You've got to remember, Germans were the ones that first launched mustard gas and nerve gas during World War I. I mean, it, it was a dark time. And rather than taking responsibility as a nation for that and saying, you know, we're, we're just living with the discipline and the response of the world to what we just tried to do to the world. 
Instead, they got angry about the sanctions and they got angry about their miserable economy. And they began to find a way to blame everybody else in the world for what was going on in their country. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Do you ever wonder why the Muslims hate us so bad? I mean, when's the last, what's the last thing you did to a Muslim? And yet, we become that focus. We become the thing they hate because of what's not happening in the economy, in the midst of their uh, society, and we become the scapegoat in the midst of that. It's exactly what world, what post-World War I Germany did to the Europe around them. And in the midst of that, if that weren't bad enough, you had a group of people who actually lived in Germany who had been wise enough to invest themselves so that they didn't feel the full burden of all the sanctions. And they'd put a ton of their, their personal savings in gold. Anybody want to guess who that group of people was? The Jews. Now you've got Germans looking at the Jews living within German society and saying, how come you guys are not suffering the way all of us are suffering? How come you guys are prospering when we don't have anything? And there was huge levels of jealousy. And so the jealousy turned into, you must be stealing from us. Uh, you're charging too much in your shops. You're charging too much in your bakeries. Uh, you, you're somehow swindling us and you're taking advantage of us. And in the midst of that hatred... A guy by the name of Adolf Hitler steps up and says, you're right. It's okay to hate. These people have wronged us. And in the midst of that anger, Germany begins to say, we don't care if it's not moral. We don't care if it's not right. Just give us money. And they are willing to let a man of such incredible darkness, who guys, you need to know, they chose by election. They elected Adolf Hitler to be their dictator. In other words, they elected him and then he took full power. But they elected him to actually do that. Germany got the leader they asked for. The leader who, re who reflected their hearts. And, I, and, and this isn't me ascribing anything tonight. This is just me saying something a little bit out loud. I'm a little bit embarrassed as we watch the election that's going on in our country at the level of, from all sides, I'm not throwing at anyone, from all sides of the name calling, of the just horrible ways that we've, because I'm afraid we're going to end up with the leader we deserve and not the leader we need. Just concerned. Because, because, because. God often gives people the leader they deserve. Which is why I would rather our country be living for Christ. It's why I'd rather we be holding those we even think about electing to a higher standard of behavior. And as Christians, that they would at least have some semblance of Christian value. So that when we actually elect them, they would be the type of leader I'd want. So you get, we get, you get the leader very often that you deserve in society. Let's talk a little bit about... Um, what do you do when the person that is in authority over you asks you to do something that's completely wrong? Uh, it's a parent who asks their child to lie about something. Um, it's a husband who asks his wife to do something 
Um, it's just a violation of her conscience. It's inappropriate. It, it's, a, it's something that she just, in her heart, cannot go do. It's a boss who says, hey, uh, we're going to doctor the reports. Uh, we're, you're going to lie to the clients in order to sell the car or whatever that is. So you have somebody who's in authority in your life who is now asking you to do something that is wrong in your life. What do you do in that moment? Anybody know? Okay, so God's my ultimate authority, but now I've got the conflict. God said don't, but the person God placed in authority, isn't that what Romans 13 said? The person God placed in authority just said yes, do. Okay. So we've got to turn it on. There we go. Hello? Yep. You just say no, just like Daniel did, and you open the window wide out. And you just say no, and you keep doing what you're doing, and you do what is right. Okay. All right, so we have another one, another hand right here. Uh, I think your answer is right there in uh, 13.3. Rulers hold no terror for those who do right. Yeah. Rulers, rulers hold no terror for those who do right. Yep. Uh, you do what the apostles did in Acts, uh, five, Acts mm. chapter 5. Yeah. They said we must obey God rather than men. Yeah. So I don't know if you remember the story. Uh, Peter has been arrested for teaching about Jesus Christ by the Sanhedrin. And uh, the Sanhedrin pulls him in, and they are uh, accusing them of all sorts of things. I, I, can't, I think they actually beat him uh, during that uh, particular passage. And they basically say to Peter, look, we can't find anything to accuse you of necessarily, but we're going to command you, you cannot talk about this Jesus anymore. And he literally, knowing that they are prepared to kill him even, says to them, you tell me, is it better for me to obey you or to obey God? Because I can tell you which of the two I'm going to do. I'm going to obey God. Okay? So there is the answer, guys, for you. There's the, there's the thing is that if somebody is telling you to do something that is in direct violation of God's command then your answer has to be no. But here's what you need to know. Even as Peter did in that moment, it's not no, you dirty, rotten, jerk, heathen. Uh, how dare you? It's just, hey, no, I, I can't. And whatever you want to do to me because I won't lie, because I won't cheat, because I won't be silent about my, whatever discipline you want to bring, you ready for this? This is the hard part. I will accept the discipline. If you want to fire me for my job, then I'm fired. If you want to, whatever that is, whatever, you don't want to talk to me, then you don't talk to me. Whatever discipline you want to do, I can't violate my highest authority for your authority. See, it's understanding positional authority. God is a higher authority than any other boss you have in your life. And I can't do that. Matter of fact, grab your Bibles real quick because I think there's one more Bible story that unpacks this for us really, really well. So we're going to go to the book of Daniel. Most of you have heard the story of Daniel. And if you're not real familiar with where the book of Daniel is, if you go to the middle of your Bible, you're going to find the book of Psalms. You're going to go to the right. You get to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And the truth is many of us heard this story uh, as children, some of us in, in Sunday school even, and may not have realized the lesson that you and I were getting taught about authority in the book of Daniel. So it's Daniel chapter 1. 
So think about this for a second. Daniel is in the worst possible circumstances that someone can be in. Daniel is in Babylon as a slave. He did not choose this employer. He didn't say, hey, you know, I agree to the salary. He literally, uh, Babylon has come in. They have conquered his country. He has been dragged off to Babylon. And a matter of fact, the very reason that he was dragged off to Babylon is probably something he was not willing to really be excited about because the hope they had was they were going to take the the really sharp, the very best of the best of the young men that were Jewish and teach them how to be Babylonians so that they eventually could have leadership over their own Jewish people, but do it in a Babylonian way and eventually convert their own people to Babylonian customs. That was the plan. That's the reason he's taken into the palace of the king. It's to basically transform him into a Babylonian-style Jew. Okay, so he's probably not even thrilled about that. Okay, and in the midst of that, you remember he's there, he's a young man, he's just gotten into the place. He uh, He has no say, he has no authority, he's got nothing going for him. And immediately they say to him, we're gonna give you food from the king's table. Now the Babylonians think they're doing something to endear Daniel to them. Because getting food from the king's table, that's an amazing privilege. I mean, this is very honoring. And yet Daniel, in good conscience, can't do it because he has all of the kosher regulations going on in his life. So now he's left as a young man with this thing that says, look, I can't, I can't in good conscience eat this because I'm Jewish and so much of what they're serving is not appropriate. And yet how insulting is it going to be I'm this teenage boy, he's a slave now, saying to them, I don't want anything from the king's table. This is going to be a horrible affront. And so, do you remember what he does? He goes to the person who's in charge of him and says to him, could I offer an alternative plan? Okay, so here it is. Let's go to the passage. It's Daniel chapter 1. Let's start in verse 3. Uh, then the king uh, ordered Aphanaz, chief of the, his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen from some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are later going to be known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and are going to get thrown into a furnace. Uh, The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, and the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official, look at this, ready? Now God had caused the official, not Daniel, not Daniel being winsome, not Daniel being so smart. God had caused the official to show favor and compassion on Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should I see, uh, why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because I was helping you. Daniel then said uh, to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. 
Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, this is the first move whenever you and I are in a situation when someone in authority over us is asking us to do something wrong. And it's what you call the appeal. So Daniel in this moment says, I understand, I get it. You want us to be healthy. You want our heads to be clear as we're learning. Can we do a test? Think about this. Uh, You're a car salesman. And now the sales manager comes and says, hey, uh, I want you to use this deceptive tactic in order to sell more cars. And in that moment, you go, hey, I, 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 I'm a Christ follower. I'm, I'm just, I can't. I can't do that. But could we do a test? Let's let everybody else on the sales force do the dishonest tactic. Let me sell cars straightforward. And after 30 days, after 60 days, let's just see whose sales are better. See, if you really trust God, that's a pretty good thing to offer. Daniel, think about this, guys, and you know you can disagree with me, and some of you will. Daniel's going to end up offering and saying, hey, let us just eat vegetables. I'm going to tell you that I don't think a vegetable-only diet, although it has some benefits, is necessarily the healthiest diet you can possibly have. You've got to have more protein than that in your diet. It's the reason God gave you incisors, so you could rip flesh, okay? But you don't have to agree. So I'm just telling you that Daniel's Daniel's plan doesn't work from a human perspective. It works if God helps it. It works if God shows up. And so Daniel is willing to put himself and his God to the test and says, let's just try this. Let me do what's honorable and right to my God. And after a certain period of time, let's see who looks better. Okay? It's the art of appeal. And I guarantee you, if you'll stop and think about it, so many of us have been in conflict with someone in leadership and we never appealed. We went to him and said, oh, I can't. I'm a Christian and you're a jerk and I can't do that. And you're such a horrible boss and you're such a crummy leader. Instead of saying, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. What are we trying to accomplish here? Well, I want greater efficiency. Okay. So could we do this? Would you let me do this? And then let's see after 30 days if it, which way has greater efficiency. The deceptive way or the honest way? Just Could we try that? And Daniel gives his God a chance to show up in the moment. He's not belligerent. He's not angry. He's not accusatory. He offers a test. Okay? He offers an alternative. And I think most of you already know. You know how the story goes. They come back after the test. Uh, Daniel and his companions all look healthier. They all look better than everybody who's been eating from the king's table. And they literally change everybody's diet based on what Daniel did. Now, here's the thing I want to suggest to you. Do you think that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the only Jews in that room? Were they the only, were they the only Jews involved in eating from the king's table? What happened to the rest of them? All the rest of them were prepared to compromise. All the rest of their friends were going to do what they were forced to do. Only Daniel had the integrity to say, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Can I appeal this? And would you be willing to see what God would do? And I'm just telling you that in those moments when you and I are faced with unrighteous, unfair leadership, the first foot forward is appeal and allow God to justify, allow God to show up. Okay. There's a second moment in the life of Daniel. So grab your Bibles and go over a little bit to Daniel chapter six. And this one's going to be different because in this moment, Daniel's going to be asked to do something 
that's inappropriate and that Daniel can't do, but there's no chance of appeal. Uh, the appeal will not be heard. There is no uh, alternative. There's no let's see how this works out. Uh, it's a closed-in, no-other-door type of situation. So it's Daniel uh, chapter 6. Uh, let's start in uh, verse 10. And again, you guys are probably familiar with this story. Here we go. It's Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Now, uh, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, and here was what the decree was. Um, now Darius, who's actually a king of the Persians, the Persians have come in in the meantime, and they've taken over Babylon. And Darius has put a huge statue of himself out in the courtyard. And uh, the other Persians have come to him and said, we hate this. Well, they didn't say it to him, but we hate this Daniel guy because he, being a Jew, actually has more regard with the king than we Persians do. So let's find a way to discredit him. And they come up with this idea of talking Darius into saying, everybody must bow down and pray to my idol. Now, if you're Daniel, there's no chance. And to make sure that the king couldn't make an exception for Daniel, that there could not be an appeal, he, they say to Darius, let's make this a law of the Medes and Persians, which is without, without removal. In other words, you can't, you can't go back, you can't change, you can't amend. It is a standing law without exception. And Darius says, well, of course, if people are going to worship me, that's a great law. So yeah, let's make it a law of the Medes and Persians. And so Daniel now finds himself in a place where he's being told that for 60 days he has to pray to a false idol. And it's in the law of the Medes and the Persians. There is no appeal process available to him. And now watch what Daniel does. So back to verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned about the decree that had been published, he went to his home, upstairs room, where the windows were open toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he has always done before. And guys, I mean, think about this for a second. He's bowing down. He's praying to God, just like he had done before. How tempted would you have been to kind of shut the shutters on the room, you know, so that you were still praying, but nobody had to see and yet Daniel says, no, no, no. I'm going to choose in this moment to honor God and, and it's okay. It's okay if others see. I know that this probably gets me in trouble, but I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to change on that. I'm going to do what's right and we'll see. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and, ask, and asking God for help. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree during the next 30 days? Anyone who prays to a god or a human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den. And the king answered, the decree stands. It's in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, that guy that you like better than us, the guy that we're trying to get into trouble, is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree uh, you put into writing. He still prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel, and he made every effort uh, until sundown to save him. So the king realizes he's been duped in the deal. He really does have affection for Daniel, but there's no way out. There's no way out. Then the men went as a group to King Darius, and they said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, listen to this, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. And all of a sudden you get a sense that in this moment of unbelievable obedience on the part of Daniel, God is forcing 
the attention of a heathen king to be watching his servant and how he behaves in this moment. Guys, I'm telling you that as you work your jobs and when that manager, when that leader, when your husband comes to you, when whatever that person in authority is and begins to do something that's unfair and unjust, don't you know in their hearts they know they're being unjust? That they're being a jerk? That they're being unfair? And I guarantee you they're watching to see what you will do next. Especially if they know you're a Christ follower. They're watching. They may not be seeing what Darius said. Boy, I hope your God spares you. But I guarantee you they're watching your reaction. So the king gave the order, verse 16, and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his two own signet ring and uh, with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation may not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace. He spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him. He could not sleep. I mean, you realize how focused he is on what Daniel's going to do. And at the first of light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Now, guys, here's what I'm just going to suggest to you. Here's Daniel. A horribly unfair decree goes out. Daniel had every right to look at Darius and say, dude, you knew I was a Christ follower. I mean, you should have thought this through that I would never bow down to an idol. You took your head off in your vanity and your self-pride and made a stupid law. And now I get to go to the lion's den. He had every right to be frustrated, right? Didn't he have... How many of us in the moment they're getting ready to throw us in the lion's den would have been saying, hey, it's unfair and you're wrong, right? Because we've done that. And we've said to the boss, you're a jerk and you're wanting me to lie and I'm not going to lie. And how could you treat me that way? As a We've done that with our leaders. And I'm just going to suggest to you that Daniel's model is a better model. Daniel does not go to the lion's den kicking and screaming. Daniel's heart is this. You've asked me to do something I cannot do. There is no appeal left, so I am willing to take the consequences of following God. I'm willing. Whatever punishment, whatever that is that you're going to... Okay. And because that's his heart and because that's his attitude, the man who was throwing him in the lion's den is actually rooting for him. Think about how amazing that is. And I guarantee you Darius would not have felt that way if Daniel had been contemptible. If Daniel had been arrogant. If Daniel has spat back. And it's the honor with which Daniel still treats the king even though the king is 100% wrong. And he just says, look, I can't. But I'll take whatever punishment. I'll take whatever you want to do. But I'm still going to follow my Lord. And guys, land the story because this is the best part of the story. Daniel answered in verse 21, May the king live forever. My God has sent his angel and he has shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders for Daniel to be lifted out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted his God. 
At the king's command, ready for this? At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. How would you like to be married to one of those bums? (laughs) Dad, what were you doing, man? You were standing against God Almighty. That was dumb. And now I'm going to the lion's. And before, watch this, before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and the peoples of every language and all the earth. So he doesn't even just do this in the the kingdom of Persia. He writes this dog, he writes this to everybody he knows or has any relationship. And watch what he writes because this is unbelievable. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. You get Darius isn't even a God follower yet. He's just now starting to figure God. He's going, you know, not my God yet, but the God of Daniel. Everybody's got to worship him. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will be, will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel, you ready? Prospered during the reign of Darius. How? By being obedient. By not standing up and scourging the bad leader that was, and simply saying, I can't. I can't. But whatever you need to do to me, you can do. And that's what you and I do when we're faced with unfair leadership. Now, here's what I'm going to say as part of that, guys, is that I think it's also completely appropriate. There are some leadership situations that you can leave. If you're a child and it's a bad parent, you're probably kind of stuck, right? Unless it goes to something that's criminal. When it gets to criminal, then we're talking about a whole different response, right? But if it's just parents and they're just not really great parents or they're, they're unfair parents or they're overly strict parents, you realize you're, you're going to learn how to be obedient in that context in order to honor your heavenly father. That's what God is calling you to. If you're a wife and you're in a relationship and you chose that man to be the head of your home, which guys, I'm, every single woman in this room, I get that you're going, I don't want no man leading me. Look, it, it, that's how it works. When you go down the aisle and you decide to get married, Scripture says you're making that man the head of their home. You're making him the father of your children. So rather than argue with what God said, how about going and finding a good man who is worthy of your respect and is worthy of your honor and would never violate it? I'm just going to tell you, your life will be a ton easier if you just simply find a good man, okay? I know they're hard to find. I'm trying to help, okay? But find a good man. Stop beating up the bad one, okay? So if you're married, then you you signed up. That's what you signed up for. But you get to an employment situation, you've got every right to say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to choose not to work here anymore. I mean, it's good money. It's a great job, but I've got a horrible supervisor. I simply choose not to work here anymore. And you have every right to do that. And this is one of the moments in which you and I have the freedom to step out from under what authority we're in and to actually choose a new authority. You and I are holding an election. We get a chance to choose a new president. So there are moments when the authority is bad that you and I have the freedom to choose a new authority. And you have the right to do that. And sometimes you don't. Okay? All right. Questions real quick on that? Yes, no. Yes? Put them high if you've got a question because they're not seeing it. Okay.
Could you please speak to the American Revolution? Uh, King George was no Joseph Stalin. Uh, it was mostly, I guess, over taxes and quartering soldiers and just generally being poorly represented. But Yeah, taxation without representation, Yeah, right, was really the cry of the revolution. And guys, just so you get a sense of this, okay, uh, you realize, remember the Boston Tea Party? And the big deal was they were taxing the tea. That's what the Boston Tea Party was all about. They were revolting at the idea that because, you got to remember, all these guys came from England, so guess what their favorite drink was? Tea. And so England was taxing the tea. Anybody know what the tax on the tea was that had the colonials so upset? If I, do you know? Turn on his mic. Stamp Act. What now? Stamp Act. I, I don't know. I didn't, you just, you just taught me something I didn't know. Do you know how much it was? Yes? Um, I don't know the exact number, but I know it was the Tea Act. I believe the Stamp Act was the one on like newspapers and other paper products. Okay. Well, you guys can know stuff I don't know. Here's, here's, here's my, I, I think I've got this right. I think I've got this right. These guys are going to go ask their teacher tomorrow and find out for me for sure. If I'm right, the tax that the colonials were revolting against was less than 1%. Less than 1%. Wouldn't you like to go back to that day? Uh, you and I can't even buy Taco Bell, you know, at that rate. So less than 1%, if I remember right. Here's what I'm going to say about the colonials and, and understand the context in which I'm saying this. When I look at the American Revolution, I don't, I don't know that I clearly see a moment in which what England was asking the Americas to do clearly violated Scripture. And if, it, if there was nothing that clearly violated Scripture, what would Scripture have told the colonials to do in that moment? Huh? Yeah. They would have said, let's talk about alternatives, let's offer options. And if they didn't come, they would have submitted, right? Because the, 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 the line that gets crossed, the line that says, hey, it's time to tell my leader I can't, is when it violates God. And there's nothing about paying a 1% tax that violates God. There was nothing in that moment that I can see that gave the colonials permission to say to England, no, we can't. And you say, well, wait, 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 Lynn, wait, 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 because you're, you're messing me up. Because look what came out of it. I mean, you're talking about an American uh, nation that, is, especially in our early days, was very Christian. In its context, most of those men uh, that were part of this, being the founding fathers and signers of our Constitution were Christian men. You can go back and find Christian heritage. No, no, you're right. You're right. I'm just telling you, I'm not sure that that was the right decision in that time. Is it possible? And I'm just asking the question. Is it possible that if they had chosen instead to do what Daniel did, that there would have been a bloodless way? Because think about the thousands of lives that we lose in the Revolutionary War. Is it possible that God would have brought a bloodless resolution for you and I to be a free America? I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because they didn't do this. I don't know that. And all I'm telling you is is that just because a good thing happened, which, believe me, I'm an American through and through, red, white, and blue. I put my hand over my heart during when we sing the Star Spangled Banner. I am that guy. I love my country. I'm just telling you, just because a good thing happened doesn't mean the way it happened was good. 
Does that make sense? And you and I've got to be very, very careful to not say, hey, let's do a bad thing that a good thing may come. You realize that's Muslim theology. Muslim theology says it's okay to kill the infidel so that we can purify the earth. It's okay if you kill women and children because we're trying to do a holy war. And you're in my Christian teaching, and theology always said, how you do something matters. And you never do the wrong thing in an attempt to do a right thing. Okay? And I'm just telling you, when I look back at the the revolution, although I'm thrilled to be an American today, I wonder what God would have done if those men had handled it slightly differently. And I don't know that answer. Yep, hand up. Yep. I might also mention, too, that just because you're a Christian and you don't want to do something, you can't call it because God told me. Yeah, it's not. this is not, and, and again, guys, uh, you can't say, um, hey, boss, you told me... Uh, to take a 2% cut or whatever it is, and you go, no, God told me you're wrong. You, you do not get to write scripture, okay? You do, not, you, do, you do not have a personal channel to God, and you, do, you don't get to do that. It's when, it's when your boss asks you to do something that is a clear violation of scripture, not of your prayer life or what the pickle just did to your stomach. That is not, that doesn't give you any authority to rebuke your boss. It's what is a clear violation of scripture. Good point. Anything else real quick before we move on? Will we beat this one up pretty well? I think a current day uh, example would be Kim Davis in Kentucky. Okay, where are we? Oh, right here. Okay, wait. Yep. Kim Davis in Kentucky would be a current day uh, example of that. So fill me in a little bit because I may not I may not know the situation right now. She refused to authorize gay marriage li- uh, licenses. Hmm. Yeah. No, I think, that's a, I think that's a legitimate example of a Christian saying, hey, I in good conscience can't do that. And if you want to fire me, I'm okay. I'm okay if you want to fire me for not doing that. Yeah. Uh, we live in a, uh, a representative democracy. Um, all the people that we elect, before they take their office, they're required to put their hand on the Bible hmm. to our allegiance to the Constitution. Yeah. If, it, if they are not obedient to the Constitution, then they are being lawless. Um, does that give us the right to act in civil disobedience? Because no, because, because at the end of the day, guys, your, your and my standard for living is not the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States is an agreement that we have amongst each other as Americans on how we plan to treat each other, right? But at the end of the day, the Constitution of the United States is not God-ordained. Remember, you got to remember, the, the original Constitution of the United States allowed for slavery. That surely was not godly. That wasn't appropriate. The Constitution of the United States is not an inspired document. It's a really darn good document and very well crafted with human capacity, but it is not my reference point for what is good and what is evil. My reference point for what is good and evil is this, and I don't have the right to say I will not do that simply because I think they're violating my constitutional rights. I have every right to complain if they violate my constitutional rights, and I have every right to go to court if they violate my constitutional rights, but I don't have the right to rebel. I have the right to rebel when they say you cannot go to church. I have the right to rebel when they say you cannot follow God. 
I have the right to rebel when they say, um, uh, you as a pastor have to marry a homosexual couple. I have so the right to say, so no, I, I won't do no that. I have no recourse then when, when I elect them and they take an oath to uphold the Constitution? Your recourse is to unelect the booger. That's your recourse. And, I, and I, guys, I'm just... And I don't want to get too political tonight. I don't want to go into that, guys. The part that I hate right now is that Christians don't go to their, don't go to their polling places and hold the candidates that they decide to elect to Christian values. They hold them to economic values. They hold them to social values. And we don't hold them to Christian values. And then we wonder why they don't lead us in godly and biblical ways. And I'm, I'm just telling you, as a Christian... Here, here, I'm just going to tell you... So I'll say this and I'm done. Okay, I'm done ranting. I have all sorts of economic ideas based on my political views. You have all sorts of economic ideas based on your political views. But I'm just telling you, your economic ideas and what's the best way to do school systems, and what, that never, 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 never overrides biblical values. So I don't care what party you believe in. You as a Christian are required to vote by biblical values. Period. That has to be your first. Now, once a candidate passes biblical values, then you can bring all the rest of your personal ideals in, all your own personal values in. But they have to pass the biblical values first because you are a Christ follower committed to representing Christ in this world. Period. Period. Okay, no more political stuff. Stop there, stop there. Go. Speaking of authority, what if someone is not in authority over you? But yes. They're just, they're just mean. Like, they're just I, mean. I struggle with this. My dad used to say when someone poops on you, you don't hand him toilet paper. So I just, like, when is it okay? Do you turn the cheek, your other cheek, the other t- Like, sometimes I just don't know what to do in that situation. Yeah. So, and I need, I need to say this. I think, I think first move forward is turn the other cheek. I think that's what Jesus taught, right? Jesus said, hey, you're going to treat that person who in that moment acted in unkindness with kindness. And, and matter of fact, not just kindness, you're actually going to look for a way to bless them. You're going to look for a way to do something extra for them beyond uh, what they were trying to do that was unfair and unkind. But I will also tell you that I think there's, there's every right for you and I as a believer, once we, because what are some of the other passages? Some of the other passages say, hey, if somebody is sinning against you, you have every right to go have a conversation with them, right? Matter of fact, it commands you to go have a conversation. And if they won't hear you and it's a big deal, remember, you get to take a brother or sister with you and you continue the conversation. And there, there's a point, guys, where it's okay to say to somebody, hey, um, if you're going to keep behaving that way, you're not going to do it in the same room I'm in. I, I'm, I'm not going to hang out with you. We're not going to be best of friends. I'm going to create some distance because your life is chaos. And I just don't want to live in the chaos right now. And if you would choose to not behave so inappropriately, then I would more than happily re-engage with you. But I don't want to be around when God spanks you because he might hit me by accident. I don't want to be anywhere near. And so there's such a thing as putting up, you know, godly boundaries to someone who is consistently and continually deciding to act in chaos. So <clears throat> I have someone in my life, and get quick second, I have somebody in my life uh, who I have pretty significant relationship with. 
they make horrible, 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 horrible decisions about money over and over and over and over and over again. And I have tried uh, to be kind. I've loaned them money time and time again. They've promised to repay me the money. They have not repaid me the money. I haven't been angry. I haven't been bitter. I've been a little persnickety, but I haven't been angry or bitter. Um, but there came a point where I had to sit down with this person and say, hey, look, I love you. I care about you, but I'm, just gonna t- I'm not going to loan you any more money. You, you don't even need to bother to ask me anymore. I'm not going to loan you. You're, what you're doing is you're asking me to support your recklessness. You're asking me to come bail you out after you make bad decision upon bad decision. And you're a full-growed person. And you're just going to have to live with the consequences of your own bad fiscal decisions now. I didn't do that out of anger. I did that to say, hey, you know what? It's time for you to grow up. It's just time for you to be a full adult. And I'm not, I'm not going to keep taking responsibility for you. You're not my child. Yeah. yeah. And I wouldn't even do it for my child. Oh, by the way, it was my child. No, I'm just teasing. It wasn't my child. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, help me a little bit with verse 3. It seems to have mixed messages. Uh, uh, verse 3 in what? In Romans? Verse 3 in Romans. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, if you do right uh, uh, and so forth, uh, you'll uh, they'll see it uh, and so forth. And you won't have any fear of the authorities. And, of course, these Christians, they're, they're are the probably the people that were doing right. And sure. The whole world was falling. It was all the other bad guys that were doing wrong, and that's... Uh, so, isn't that a kind of a mixed message there? Help me figure yeah, that out. Yeah, so here's what... Here's, and I, that's a great catch there, Earl. I don't, I don't think that, that verse 3 is intended as a promise. I think it's intended as a principle. Okay? So, the question Earl was asking, guys, I need to hear. It's a great question. Hey, um... Oops, I went to the wrong place. Romans chapter 13... Uh, verse 3 says, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. And uh, so do what's right. Uh, but for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from fear? Through the one in authority, do the right thing. And so what I think it's saying there is not, it's not saying this is a promise that if you do the, because Daniel went to the lion's den doing the right thing, right? So there's very clearly, biblically, an example that says a guy who did the right thing still had something go bad in his life, technically in the moment. But what I think it is saying is this. That what I'm not supposed to do, and we had the question over here, you know, when do I start behaving badly toward my, the person in authority? When do I start rebelling against them? When do I start uh, going around them and, you know, and, and trying to get my own way? And the answer there is no, no, no. Do the right, you just be sure you're doing the right thing because in about 90% of the situations, you doing the right thing is going to set you up for the best possible solution. Okay. Uh, but, you start taking that in your own hands. You start trying to outthink, outsmart, outflank your leader. You start doing the whole passive. How many have ever been a passive aggressive person that goes, "Oh yeah, sure, I'll do that." Walks out of the road and you know darn well they're not going to do it. And we've all been passive aggressive sometimes, right? And I think that's Earl. What he's trying to say is, "Hey, you be sure you're doing the right thing," because mostly the vast majority. This is a principle. Most of the time, you doing the right thing is the best is the best for your success and best chance to change your leader. Yeah. Okay. So, say I am a Christian living. In well, this Lord's is bothering us. How many have bad leaders right now? We're just angry. No. All right. Okay. I get it. All right. This, this is about change of leadership. Uh, I'm a Christian living in Mosul, Iraq, and ISIS takes over the city, and they start beheading Christians. Am yeah. I to be regarded as sheep for the slaughter? Or no. Am I allowed to pick up a rifle and shoot? Back? You're allowed to pick up a rifle. Thank you. You're welcome. Because again, what are, what are they doing now? 
they are they are doing something that's absolutely um, I would think that killing Christians is fairly unbiblical, right? Uh, and Scripture absolutely gives you and me the right to defend ourselves. It just does. You're in your house, and somebody comes in your house to rape your wife or do something to your daughter. You don't want to do that at my house. I'm just going to tell you because you're not going to leave a happy person. You have the right to defend yourself, okay? Not to, not to instigate, not to be the aggressor, but you have every right to defend yourself. You just do. Yep. Someone comes up to rob me, they're going to work for it. That's all I'm saying. Oh, I need to wrap it up. Is that what you're saying? Wrap. All right. Okay. So they're telling me time is done. All right. All right. Any, any one last question? Because I actually have two minutes. No, we're good. Okay. Let's close in prayer then. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, thank you for the discussion tonight. Thanks for bothering us a little bit tonight. And uh, I just ask that you would have us leave this place, and especially those of us that maybe are in the midst of this challenge right now, that we uh, find ourselves uh, up against leadership that may be really unfair, may be really, really unjust, and might even be unbiblical. And God, I just ask that you would help us to navigate this in a way that brings absolute honor and glory to you, that might even cause that unfair leader to see you, in the behavior of our lives. But God, mostly of all, that we would be able to stand before you with clean hands and say, I did exactly what you required of me in order uh, to show your glory and your fame and my trust in you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.